0: Frame after frame, by means of the illusion of the persistence of vision, pre-manufactured dreams are presented to us. We call them movies. They come in a large array of genres. But there is one genre that is rarely considered, and that is the Southern film. If you are a Southerner, let me ask you, do most of these films accurately portray you, or perhaps betray you? and your Southern culture. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life,
1: watching America. All my life, there's panic in America. Oh, 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 oh.
0: There's trouble in America. Oh, 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 oh. From WHRV Norfolk. This is Watching America. You're going to get used to wearing them chains after a while, Luke. wish you'd stop being so good to me, Captain. Never! Never! What we've got here is failure to communicate.
1: One day, out of blue, clear sky, I got a letter from Jenny wondering if I could come down to Savannah
0: I found out that money is the most important thing in the world and I don't intend ever to be without it again I'm going to make money enough so the Yankees can never take Tara away from me I'm gonna make it the only way I know how
1: but we're not the only southerners who
0: suffered Scarlett look at all our friends they're keeping their honor and their kindness too yes and they're starving Met an old friend of yours, oh, Owen Jenkins. Do you remember him? Well, now
1: he lives in Monroe and goes to First Presbyterian. His wife just died recently. He's moved back
0: down here. Does this story have a point? Do You know, you know, you are aware that I'm a complete movie fanatic. Well, why wouldn't I be teaching film and what have you, amongst other things? And so, therefore, it is with great glee. I underline that word three times glee, glee, glee. Glee Club? Well, yes, maybe. There's a lot of us who no doubt will feel gleeful at having Ben Beard as my guest today on Watching America. He is the author of a new book entitled The South Never Plays Itself A Film Buff's Journey through the South on screen. Now, it's a, it's a magical land, the silver screen that we talk about, but sometimes things aren't portrayed, well, as they really are. And so with that in mind, we speak to a man who knows about the South, albeit that he grew up in Pensacola, Florida. Let me begin, Ben, by asking you, what was life like uh, as, a, as a young boy growing up in Pensacola, Florida? My port of entry, incidentally, to America was Miami, so I have a great fondness for Floridians. But uh, what was your, your, your story like?
1: Well, Alan, thanks for having me on. Uh, Pensacola in the 80s was um, a weird mashup of uh, fundamentalist Christians Kind of beach bums. Uh, There's a military base there. There's a kind of seedy uh, port town feel. And then there's tons of tourists and vacationers. So it was kind of a mashup of uh, Florida and Alabama.
0: So was there, you know, Tom Petty grew up in a similar area. And so there's, uh, you know, there's a a very definite uh, artistry in Florida, which some people don't recognize. Um, Were you a part of that world by going to the cinema a lot and perhaps wanting to make films of your own? Or or did you arrive at that later?
1: Well, I, my dad and I went every weekend. It was uh, alongside church and comic books. It was the formative ritual and uh, art in my life, even as a young child. I would not say I was a cinephile as a kid. I watched whatever I could, um, but my dad would talk about movies like M.A.S.H., uh, you know, kind of deconstruct the scenes when we were driving around. And so I, I, you know, I had a little bit of that early on. So would Uh,
0: he talk about Robert Altman, for instance? Would he get that involved? He was aware of directors and, for instance, the (laughs) miking techniques and things that technically?
1: He was, but he focused more on like how these sort of emotional moments in a scene that he could, that you remembered, you know, decades yes. later. Yes. But yeah. He knew directors. He loved John Ford. Mm-hmm. He loved Howard Hawks. Yes. He loved, uh, uh noir and Westerns and army movies, uh, mostly. And those, those would be on TV and I'd watch with, I'd, I wasn't like a old movie fan at first, but I tolerated them. But now I'm a fanatic,
0: um what did you want to do with your life as a child did you want to be a baseball player football player what what did you envision the grown ben doing
1: uh i wanted to be a writer uh i wanted to write comic books and draw comic books pretty early on and then when i realized i couldn't draw very well i wanted to write uh and direct films which you guessed on uh but my life just didn't work out that way and i started writing fiction at 19 pretty seriously uh uh I had been writing before that, but and I know it seems kind of dumb to say 19. I was writing seriously, but you know, I I started my first novel that I would call like an adult novel at 19. It took me five years to write it. It's terrible, but
0: well, you know, I always say to people, better to have written a terrible novel than never to have written one at all. <laughs> <And> so <laughs>
1: no, I agree with yeah. you. They're they're so hard to do, even a bad one, and they take so much of your emotional uh, energy. Yes. But uh, they're worthwhile because you learn about yourself and you kind of see the world differently. Uh, Yeah.
0: So you're in Pensacola, Florida. Um, You are uh, basically in the Panhandle area and going out uh, towards Alabama and what have you. So you, you develop a sincere and true sense of Southern culture. Although, as your book points out, and I think any sensitive, discerning person would recognize, there are many Southern cultures and uh, hollywood has not been particularly good at recognizing that they they you know you t- tend to have this amalgamation of just the southern character actors as i'm sure you will attest to and non-actors alike view southern accents as the you know easiest one to emulate so most persons fail to really appreciate that there are various nuances in fact and multiple types of southern accents so it all kinds of get gets blended together with sometimes frankly ineptitude on the part of some actors and a a, a romanticized misunderstanding of the South. Let's go to the beginning if we can. Um, Father of American cinema, D.W. Griffith, Um, he was the son of a former Confederate Kentucky um, general, I believe, Uh, and um, he sets about to put his signature on how how the South should be perceived, including with Birth of a Nation, which as you know, became one of the most racist films ever produced. What do you make of that? Did that set the course for Southern films for a long time, or was that an initial anomaly in your mind?
1: I think it marbled racism into the Hollywood output from top to bottom. And we look at Birth of a Nation, everyone studies it, every film student studies it for the technique, but I think they miss out on the film's subtle and not so subtle messages. So like, You know, it entered into the popular consciousness that Reconstruction was just a terrible thing and that the South, they were victims and that the former enslaved people were violent and they didn't deserve um, any kind of political voice. And I I think that that colored uh, a lot of Hollywood's output. And the bizarre thing is that all those early Hollywood producers, a lot of them had kind of escaped oppression themselves. fleeing Europe, you know, anti-Semitism and pogroms in Europe. So it's a weird it's a weird thing. And, you know, Birth of a Nation really is what started Hollywood, and it's it's distasteful in a lot of ways. The, the film's messages and the stereotypes, they, they're there in films that come after. Uh, David Selznick hired some people associated with Gone with the Wind trying to not have racism in his movie, and he... He succeeded by the standards at the time. I'd say he failed by our standards now.
0: Well, the way I heard it described, and I think is, is quite uh, astute, it was an artistic triumph but a social travesty as a film. Um, for the purpose of our listeners, D.W. Griffith is considered the father of American film, American cinema. He decides to go out to California, and Birth of a Nation is actually made on the same location where today Burbank Universal Studios were, although at that time Universal didn't exist. The thing about the film is that there was so much money thrown at it, as you're aware, Ben, Um, in fact, the recreation of very elaborate sets like Congress and um, heaven forbid in the eyes of D.W. Griffith, uh, he tried to portray how it would be if African-Americans were given the opportunity to be representatives in Congress. Now, the irony of it is, is that they actually were. In the 1800s, as as reformation of the South, you actually did have many uh, African-American representatives in Congress, Republican uh, by association. But he dis- uh, conveniently, dis- uh, blithely throws that away and depicts people as eating watermelons and having rope tied around their waist for belts and, and drinking whiskey on the side. The nation sees this, to most time, a full orchestra. I mean, this was the original blockbuster. So you have uh, Selznick comes along and wants to remedy that with films like Gone with the Wind. In your estimation, Ben, how successful was he?
1: Well, he scrubbed, I mean, Margaret Mitchell's novel, which is, it's an astonishing, it's very powerful. Uh, It's the only book she wrote, uh, and there's a reason it's read everywhere, uh, but it, it's a racist novel. She she was a unrepent unrepentant Southerner who wanted. She thought the the end of the Civil War was a travesty, and and so Selznick he bought the novel the rights to the novel uh, really early, and he had tons of different writers take a crack at it, including I love this Alfred Hitchcock gave some notes because he was over for uh, Rebecca, but. Is he successful? Um, I, I would say you said um, the, uh, Birth of a Nation's great art and uh, social travesty. I would say uh, Gone with the Wind is uh, a good film, but terrible history. And for me, its flaws and its virtues are kind of connected. It, it tells the story of the Civil War through a plantation owner who loses her um, her land temporarily, and a gun-running, kind of amoral, uh, kind of a hedonist, and those are the two main characters. And that's a bizarre way to focus on the Civil War. You can't criticize the movie for picking its main characters from a novel that it adapted, right? But it's very powerful, and it's kind of a formative, you know, it stands in the sort of way we see the South. It's right up there, right, in this myth of the South, uh, Pat Conroy said in his memoir about reading that his mother, you know, she loved it. And that novel and the movie were were kind of like a, a huge influence on how everyone, including Pat Conroy, saw the country they lived in. Um, is he successful in refuting Birth of a Nation? No, he does take the Klan out of them, out of the story. And instead, it's like a white citizens council type um, And he has uh, Hattie McDaniel's character, which is in the novel too. And she's, you know, great when she's on screen, but I, you know, I'm not so sure. I don't think people watch it much. I don't think on a Friday night, a bunch of 18- and 19-year-olds are like, hey, let's watch Gone with the Wind. (laughs) So the people debating it, right, are people above a certain age or hardcore cinephiles, like in their 20s. But it's it's a very powerful and potent symbol and film because HBO pulls it from its services for a week to do a little introduction, and the country goes haywire.
0: Yes, yeah. Well, it's become part of the ethos of, uh, of the fantasized, if you will, um, fantasy version of, of the South. Um, there's been no end to the discussion about Hadia McDaniels playing the Mammy character was she a sellout. Um, and this is also replete throughout a lot of films dealing with African-Americans in early films uh, be- between race pictures, as they were called at the time, or um, uh, films that were placed on what was also known as the Chitlin circuit uh, versus working in mainline roles. Um, Hattie McDaniels obviously wins the first Supporting Actress Academy Award in 1939 There were other persons that um, I I, I think are worthy of debate and discussion Uh, You have two English people, Leslie Howard But you also have Vivian Lee, uh, who is British And she's playing uh, a Southerner with a Southern accent, Fiddle Dee Dee As a Southerner, what do you make of that? Is that fair game or do you think that was a misnomer and a mistake?
1: So Selznick did screen tests, as you know, for hundreds of people. Betty Davis was in the role. Uh, Catherine Hepburn was up for the role for a while. Um, every uh, every actress of the era wanted the role, and every actress was up for it. I think Vivian Leigh is perfect. I think she's amazing in the film. I think she's, besides the costumes and the lighting and stuff, I think she's the best thing about the movie. I think it needed to be either a, a Georgian someone from Georgia or like Alabama or, or not not an American because um, you know Margaret Mitchell said in some letters that the, the problem with the southern accent is that actors try to do all of the South together yes they don't pick one era area so yes. like a Alabama person sounds really different than a southern Louisiana person absolutely and like yeah. Florida chunks of Florida barely have any accent at all but you know, they, they often try to just kind of grab it all, right? And, right. and it sounds like a mishmash of, of, of it like, almost sounds like a speech impediment when it's done poorly, which it often is. So, I mean, I think Vivian Lee is amazing, and I think that she embodies the role really well, and I think that she kind of gives it um, uh, a kind of feminist force, and that's one reason why the movie sticks around, right? I mean, she, Scarlett Harris is just a great character, acted really well.
0: Well, Ben, let's uh, investigate something which is curious to me. Um, the South has, uh, there's many different forms of the South, as you are aware. Uh, if you talk about the South, you can be talking about Texas, and then you're talking about giant the film. Um, uh, there again, you know, uh, you can be talking about other regions. There's the colonial south, the plantation south, which as we've just alluded to, you finding in Gone with the Wind, there was a, a spectrum of southern culture that saw itself as the kind of the, the new landed gentry from from Britain. So they were going to recreate that in the south. And so you have the plantation um, form of that but then you also have the portrayal of the south as a place of injustice um, not only racially but for instance we have you know uh, Corhan Luke you know what we got here is failure to communicate okay so um, you've y- y- you've got that uh, uh, if you will that sphere and marbleized formation in in the collective culture what are the major categories that you see as the depictions of the South, if you were to separate them and you say, well, there's this genre and there's that genre and there's that, that genre as a subgenre, all of them, under Southern Pictures?
1: All right. Uh, so the Texas movie – I have a chapter on Texas. And Texas has a, a lot of the great films. And they tend to be about stewardship of the land. They tend to be about cattle and cowboys sort of evolving into oil and and – Kind of business, um, and there's a bunch of films about that. Florida films, which I also have a chapter on, tend to be uh, beachy. Often um, there's gangsters down in Miami. Tons of gangster films where they visit Miami, um, and then you got the uh, the South as the real America, uh, where you know city dwellers go down to the South and they discover like the real meaning of life, which is storytelling on the front porch and uh, drinking tea and just kind of hanging out. Um,
0: Would you put Norma Ray in that category, although it was a, you know, it was a very uh, conscious labor?
1: Yeah, I don't may no. I mean, because you've got the New York guy who's always, he's like praising uh, all the culture you get in New York. I mean, maybe. Norma Ray is a great film. Uh, I, I put that as like a... Uh,
0: Socially conscious one.
1: Socially conscious movie about yeah. trying to make a, like an argument about like, how America should be. But you have this genre of films. There's a whole bunch of these. And the best one is Deliverance. Yes. And it's where the South is, a, is so violent, if you get off the beaten path, that you're going to be raped, murdered, kidnapped, um, uh, harmed, maimed by these kind of uh, rural morlocks. And I love Deliverance. I think it's a great great film and a complete lie. And I've been lost all in the back roads, up and down the South. And people are friendly and helpful. And yeah, I mean...
0: So do we blame James Dickey or do we blame Burt Reynolds?
1: (laughs) Well, so Burt Reynolds made, as you know, you could do a book just on Burt Reynolds' films in the South. Uh, And he made, like, they're mostly terrible, White Lightning, Gator, (laughs) (laughs) where he's like a... um, he's like Dirty Harry in the swamp yeah. <laughs> uh, he did
0: you gotta uh, have Jerry Reed with him
1: yes right <laughs> <laughs> you got H.H. Uh, H. H. and the Dixie Dance Kings I think the name of it where he's the manager of a southern band
0: so he made them every week I think yeah <laughs> he, he, he
1: made so many and he loves
0: shooting in Georgia as you know He it was one of his favorite areas to shoot Florida and Georgia
1: yeah I, I don't know why yeah. I, his but so I don't blame I don't blame Burt <laughs> Reynolds he clearly thought Because he directed some of these, I mean, he had some skin in the game. I think he thought um, that he was giving audiences what they wanted, which is moonshiners, like uh, uh, Dixie Fried, gangsters, right? uh, You know, ass kicking. uh, uh, You know, I'm going to punch punch out any villain. The
0: good old boy gets it over on the law.
1: Right, right. And he's always breaking law, but he's breaking law for the right reasons, just because he's having fun. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. He's he's a Yeah. Anyway, but like there's a whole bunch of those kind of rural Morlock films and they're really troubling as a presence because um, Deliverance has become a punchline in other films and just in everyday culture. And what they're saying is, oh, man, those those rednecks, they're going to, you know, they're going to rape you if you if you get lost down there Uh, and they're inbred and, and so on. You know, another of these, like Southern Comfort, it's similar to Deliverance, but it's uh, it's like Vietnam and South Louisiana. It's the same thing, though. It's um, the South like another world, and it's not only going back in time. It's You're taking your life in your hands, getting lost down there. And so I, I see a lot of these, and, and it's a genre that I find – I mean, I enjoy them on some level, but it's uh, it's a fabrication, and it's, it's – I don't care that it's unfair. It is unfair. I don't care about that. But it does harm, uh, I think, to our understanding of ourselves and the country we live in because there's vast tracts, right? There's huge stretches of land populated by people who are kind of off. They're not really quite in the 21st century. They're struggling. They come from struggling people and to portray them as kind of uh, the other
0: well, to 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 be simple folk is one thing. As for instance, Appalachia, whatever simple folk, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but sure. people without furl and, if you will, uh, the accoutrements of of financial success. That's one thing. But to portray them as deviant uh, is quite another. Is is what I, I'm hearing you say?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then there are a lot of other genres that, that aren't really around anymore. You mentioned the race picture. There was also a plantation picture, which you mentioned, but there was a whole there were a lot more of these than I knew about. Like Cabin and the Cotton was one from yes. the thirties. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of these. There's more than you can keep track of. Like, that's a whole book on its own, right? And uh, uh, there are, I'm sure, professors who only study that. There's dozens and dozens. Of, there could be a hundred of them, right? And But that's another genre. And then you've got the Southern sports movie, which tends to be football, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense because high school football down there is kind of crazy.
0: Well, let's talk about, if I may, just for a second, like, for instance, um, you, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, films from the 30s. We've got Porgy and Bess, you know, we've got Gershwin here, and we've got Sammy Davis, Pearl Bailey, uh, people of that ilk who are in major musicals. Um, so, where you have the steamboat, you know, going yeah. down the Mississippi and what have you. Do you, do you find that, um, uh, do you take umbrage at that kind of image, or do you think it's, it's acceptable and uh, even though not realistic necessarily, an embracing of an element of, if you will, the Mark Twainish kind of self?
1: I think it's all we've got from the era so we have to deal with it. I think um, Cabin in the Sky, the Vincent Minnelli movie, I think it's a masterpiece. I mean, I love it. Mm -hmm. It's problematic with some of the images, especially near the end, but I think it's a great film. All black cast, great songs. Vincent Minnelli's, I mean, you know, he's Vincent Minnelli, right? Um, And some of these other performances... Uh, uh, showboat, I think. And, you know, but what's interesting is I didn't know this. Okay. Cause I, I didn't grow up in the thirties and forties. I didn't know this, but the, so, when they would show them the films in the South, they would often edit or cut out the black performances of a lot of these films, not the all black films, but in, um, some of the song numbers. Yes. And they did this because the censorship boards were like, wait, you can't, You know, hold on. It looks like there might be a little romance here or you can you know, and and so they edited their own product. Uh, And that is very strange to me. It also makes perfect sense. You know, Um, so do I get take a I don't I don't approach the films like, oh, here's another racist film from the 1930s, you know, because like Langston Hughes wrote a a film, uh, which I didn't know that either and they made it and it's a wild movie set during the um, pre-civil war about a white kid singing spirituals with enslaved people that's basically the film and the white kid comes to some understanding of the country he lives in but i'm sorry the name, the title is escaping me at the moment but
0: well talking about editing for instance you know i think you were referring to like Lena Horne those sure. famous scenes where she was edited out there's a gorgeous scene of her in a bathtub Uh, where she's performing. In the south, uh, they took the, the scenes out and then evidently when the same reel would be sent up north, um, the projectionist would reinsert the scene of her singing in the bathtub. And the idea of, of an African-American woman being alluring and exotic and very sexy was greatly threatening, evidently, in the minds of, of, of many. Before we go any further, I want people to know who I'm speaking with. I'm speaking with Ben Beard. He is the author of a wonderful book, and I underline that you know, three times. No, I'm going to go four times. Here it is. Okay. <laughs> the South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen. And um, the, the, the the fact is, in, it doesn't play itself. It has other people interpreting, a, if you will, a phony version. Now, if there are any exceptions where the South has got to, had the opportunity to portray itself realistically with a realistically Southern cast, what is the best example you can think of, Ben?
1: Well, again, the South's not one thing, right? So you, you could go to different different parts of the South or different aspects of the South. A movie that really moved me uh, because I was raised in a very religious – I had a very religious upbringing was Junebug, which follows an English woman who marries a guy from North Carolina, and she marries him before she meets his family, and then they go back to his hometown and she's an art collector, so she's going with him to kind of talk to this folk artist down there who makes these bizarre, um, sexualized paintings about um, the South and, and race and stuff. And anyway, she meets his family. It's very she's, it's very tense. Um, um, they don't understand each other. She's not really trying to understand them, and they are kind of rejecting her. And there's a scene where they go to a church picnic, and they call, uh, it's a small town, they call her husband up to sing. And she doesn't know, it. she's like, what, what's going on? And he sings a hymn.
0: All right, everybody. Um, now y'all knew that we had a treat when you heard George Johnston was back in town. All right, now, now don't tell a lie. Who of y'all thought that he was gonna get out of here without giving us a hymn? <laughs> hmm? Hey, this wasn't my idea. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you're a little rusty, Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me.
1: He sings it with, with real belief, and she's kind of horrified by this. And, and she doesn't understand the guy that she married. She doesn't understand belief. And um, this, in, this captured, to me, religion in the South as like a force that's social, political, aesthetic, powerful, personal, and how it looks to someone who doesn't know anything about it. Right. And so that was a really that's a you know, the film it's a great film.
0: So you would say it's 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 a helpful film for understanding.
1: Yes. Uh, the Florida project which is uh, was is pretty recent.
0: I love um, it. It's one of my favorite films. It's amazing. I adore it shot in Kissimmee. Um, I want to get the director on. It, it I, I just Okay, let me just Wow. I mean the fireworks have gone off in the studio here with you mentioning <laughs> that. Okay. But it's it's a fabulous film, one of the most clever, brilliant films. I I didn't think it got sufficient attention, and uh, I think it's a work of genius.
1: It captures a version of the South that I feel like I know really well, which is you have these – I call them the fourth generation of tobacco rotors, but you have these exiles of American culture. They are scuttling along. They're doing the best they can. There's nothing – there's no real safety net for them, and they've washed up in this hotel – Right. Uh, outside of Disney World, basically outside of Orlando. Yes. And it follows these couple of kids, and they're sort of feral.
0: Excuse me, excuse me, miss. Could you give us some change, please? We need yes. to buy ice cream. Because we don't have any money, we just have five cents. Yeah, we just have five cents. And the doctor said we have asthma and we gotta eat ice cream yeah. right away. Like, yeah, my doctor too. ice cream. Guys, we're not lying. It's fine. Thank you very much. There
1: you go. Let's go. Oh, come on. And it follows these kids as they uh, cause trouble and as they sort of navigate the adult world that is both looking out for them in a way and completely ignoring them in another.
0: And great lines, for instance, which are ironic, where uh, at one point, um, who's, who's the, the main actor in the. William Defoe. William Defoe. And he says, you know, that's that kid from Future World. <laughs> and the irony of it is, the cat has no future. Yeah, uh, and you know you can extrapolate also from all these things going on. There's perpetual helicopters that are taking off, yeah. where people are sending to freedom, when these poor souls are left destitute, uh, trying to make the best of of daily living in in these r- kind of rundown, although uh, turquoise gilded establishments and hotels. Um, one of the films that I think handles religion very well. And I'll, I'll share a little story with you. I used to live in San Francisco, and I was really upset with the um, one of the San Francisco Chronicle film reviewers. I won't go into it. But um, it was about the film The Apostle with Robert Duvall, which I think yeah, is a great film. It is. And he made the comment, well, oh, The Apostle, where you have the depiction of white and black people together, is absolutely unrealistic and impossible in the church. Not if you were dealing with a charismatic church or Pentecostal. In the Pentecostal South, you did have white and black people, as you still do, intermingled. So that spoke to me of somebody, even though ironically I'm an outsider to the South, but speaking with great authority about that which they knew very little of. Uh, I thought The Apostle was a great film.
1: Yeah, me too. And what I liked about it in part is that it t- it handled – it deals with religious belief on its own terms. Yes. Uh, Hollywood yeah. tends to show religious belief as like a demonic negative force. Yes. Like uh, 21 Grams or um, Cape Fear, the remake of Cape right. Fear.
0: yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: yeah. Which is like – it's the exact opposite of my own experiences with right. religious belief. Right. Yes, it can distort the world you're seeing. Yes, it can lead you to um, – Political beliefs. Yes, you can end up rejecting things that you really don't know anything about, but it's also um, can be really uplifting. And it keeps a lot of people, I'm not a religious person anymore, but those religious beliefs are some of the, it's like the only thing some people have.
0: Well, Cape Fear was, I think, an unfair remaking of a work. I mean, I like Scorsese. I like most of his films what he does. I recognize his artistry and his brilliance. But to have it Robert De Niro as he's menacing a young girl say, I'm going to make you speak in tongues and stuff like that is such a complete, um, uh, I just thought it was so unfair.
1: Yeah, and I, what I like about the Apostle, you know, is that Duval is a very flawed man. Yes. But it is his religious belief that kind of animates the decency in him.
0: Which makes it seem more and more authentic. Give it to me tonight, Lord God, Jehovah. If you won't give me back my wife, give me peace. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give me peace. I'm mad. I love you, Lord, I love you, but I'm mad at you. I am mad at you. I know I'm a sinner and I in a woman, but I'm your servant. Since I was a little boy, you brought me back from the dead. I'm your servant. I've always called you Jesus. You always called me Sonny. What should I do, Jesus? This is Sonny talking now.
1: The only flaw is that he's not as charismatic a preacher as the, he should be in the role. And I've seen preachers that will like you know blister your eyeballs you know i mean i've seen it I'm, i didn't come from a pentecostal background i was a southern brave southern baptist but i went to revivals and i saw a lot of those visiting pastors some of the visiting uh, black pastors that would just saw the top of your head off you know like James Brown from the Blues Brothers. They would just really whip the crowd up.
0: Let me ask you a question. Having come from a Southern Baptist background, um, this country has produced uh, two presidents and a vice president who are all Southern Baptists, and I speak of Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Al Gore. Um, And certainly then we have, you know, George W. Bush by proxy, we might consider a Southerner uh, by living in Texas, and then certainly LBJ. Um, Did the... Admission to the political consciousness of the United States, having Southern presidents, did that have any impact cinematically in your estimation to any degree or was it a a non-essential?
1: I think Lyndon Johnson is exerting more and more cultural – he's appearing more and more in films. Yes. Uh, Some of them quite good um, and some of them not good. I think Woody Harrelson plays him in one film. John Cusack plays him in one film. Uh, uh, the guy from, um, I'm forgetting his name, Brian Cranston plays him in a pretty good film uh, about his relationship with Martin Luther King and passing the uh, Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, uh, which was really a, a strong movie. Um, I, You know, Jimmy Carter, you know, he's, he's a non-entity on film, really, which is a shame because he's a fascinating person. Bush, however... You know, you could argue the two thousands. Uh, the bulk of the films were grappling with him mm-hmm. in some way, and mm-hmm. what he was doing, and what his uh, administration was doing. And he's a fascinating guy, right? Because he's like a New Englander, basically. Right, Yale uh,
0: graduate. Daddy came has a place, Kenny Bunkport, in Maine, and yet he chooses to live in in Texas. And, and his, dad, his dad, his dad, his dad was a congressman from Texas, I believe.
1: Yeah, but yeah. he sells himself as a kind of good old boy, straight yeah. shooter, and yeah. I would argue that. Part of the reason he was elected was he presented himself as, like, uh, no-nonsense Texan. Um, and he, they they tarred Al Gore as a kind of a feat um,
0: uh, over-analytical guy. Like, we you know. know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And then you're right. I mean, you've got George W. Bush, um, W., as they said. Um, he's in Brooks Brothers' suits with cowboy boots on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's and, it in a nutshell.
1: I mean, I uh, I thought Fair Night 9-11 was a, a, a really good film, a very personal kind of essay uh, about Michael Moore's relationship to George Bush, W. Bush, that, like, encapsulates a lot. Uh, is it a successful film? I, I don't know. I, it was very powerful to me. I watched it with my wife. We were visiting Spain at the time. I was living in Spain at the time. hmm and we watched it in a Spanish theater that had uh, Spanish subtitles. Usually they dub, they dub films into Spanish there. Yes, yes. Anyway, um, the anti-American cinema, because we had invaded Iraq, was like really high. And when the movie was over, this, the crowd was seething, And so, I'm not kidding. I love Spain, by the way, but so angry and hostile. And I could tell they knew I was an American we kind of jogged out the front exit and ran, <laughs> ran, ran out, you know?
0: Well, I'm laughing because I had a similar experience in America when I went to see The Patriot. and <laughs> So it's oh, like I, I went to get my second thing of popcorn, and suddenly I, I I I immediately abandoned my English accent and like, hi, I'd like to have a second bowl of popcorn, please, <laughs> <You know? laughs> because you know, all these people like, we're gonna kill those British redcoats <laughs> so, in Like, not a good place for Alan to be. Yeah, <laughs> and that was in Boston, by the way. Oh god, so, yeah, yeah. Um, let me just uh, veer away, and we will come back to cinema again. But let me just remind people, I'm speaking with Ben Beard. It's such a delightful conversation. His new book is entitled The South Never Plays Itself, a film bath's journey through, well, the the South on screen as it's depicted in variable ways, sometimes uh, close to target and sometimes very much off. I want to talk about television just briefly. Um, It seems to me that, that, you know, there's some solidified uh, notions of what the South can be. We have Andy Griffith, uh, born in Mount Airy, North Carolina. And there he is with good old Don Knotts, uh, who yeah. was incidentally born in West Virginia, and so people are looking for the Mayberry tale. Now you know you had you had different uh, characters on the show, which didn't make a lot of sense. You had Aunt Bee, who incidentally always had a northern accent. <laughs> Um, but then you have the evolution from that, and then you get into later works like Brett Butler, uh, Grace Under Fire, with her, her very uh, prominent Southern um, uh, presence and interpretation. Reba McIntyre in, on, on Reba, for instance. And um, and then you have syndicated shows like, you know, Hee Haw, which were musically built and, and what have you. Um is there a, a interplay between the depiction and favorability of, of depiction of Southerners on television, then making and transitioning to film that you are aware of to any extent?
1: Well, I first saw Hee Haw in syndication when I was a child, and I was bewildered, both by its appeal and like what I was watching. I, I could not grasp what I was seeing. Mm. Um, the Andy Griffith show, I also watched this syndication and to me, the Andy Griffith show is really, it's about like folksy charm and the real America. That's not violent at all. These small towns that you go to and you fall in love with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, complete fiction to me, complete yes. fiction. Right. right. The, the, the way too simplistic. I like it, uh, uh, Andy Griffith as a performer. I think Facing the Crowd's amazing, by the way. I mean, I think he's a, a really good actor. No time for sergeants. Right. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. really funny. Yeah. And the Andy Griffith show, from my memory, is really good. Now, your question is how does that interplay with the films? And I would say the South, like in the 70s, it was almost like we have to insult the South as much as possible. The South is a comedically terrible place. The South is um the butt of all the jokes and the hee haw is part of that. And it's weird, uh, because the South is not it's a vast region and it's you know, millions and millions and millions of people, and it has everything from Miami uh to to Pensacola to Atlanta to Memphis to small towns in Mississippi to southern Louisiana to Texas. Um to the Carolinas, which are their coastal Carolinas, have their own kind of thing. And so, yeah, it's weird. It's weird that that happened. However, the South didn't stay a joke. I would say the racist Southerner remains a stock character, where the Southerner is a um, shorthand for racist. Yes. And in Jerry Maguire, uh, a movie I kind of like, but there's a scene where Beau Bridges says something like, He has a Southern accent, and when he says something to to Tom Cruise's character, Jerry Maguire, and it's clear that you're supposed to know his entire life from what he says and how he says it, and it's because he's a Texan, right? Right. He's racist Mm -hmm. because he's a Texan, and he's a Texan because he's racist. It's a weird sort of tautology. But I would say the South, like filmmakers had to grapple with it, especially filmmakers interested in America, right? They they have to grapple with it in some way. I'm talking about the filmmakers who make lots of films. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. And you you have like Sweet Home Alabama, the Reese Witherspoon film that's kind of like, it's like the Andy Griffith show, but you have a, a woman who went to New York and came back and like rediscovers America and, and the small town, the real meaning of life. You have a lot of films like that, but I think the South's being portrayed with more complexity. You have Donald Glover's amazing show, Atlanta. You had... Season two of Mine These are television shows. You had season two of Mindhunter, which dealt with the Atlanta child murderer mm-hmm. and the racial politics of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. I don't know Andy Griffith's cultural cachet anymore. Like, like yes. that show was enormous when I was a kid. Still, right? Yeah. Gomer Pyle was like a, was on TV all the time.
0: I think I think it represents a time that people want to hearken back to that perhaps never existed.
1: Yeah, that's right. Like, I, I want to say Pauline kale said it about. Um, well, about a lot of the films of the era, but of even of the 70s, she was saying like, these films are celebrating things that never happened. And they're really only celebrating white people, like not really having many problems. There's, there don't tend to be many women. They don't tend to be uh, any people of color. And if there are... They're black people. Right. You don't see yes. Latinos. Yeah. You don't see Asian Americans.
0: But, you, for instance, in Giant, though, you do have anti-racist. Um, I mean, Rock Hudson uh, stands up and, is, you know, uh, pulverizes somebody. Um, who is right. You know, so you do have. What well, he loses of sensitivity. the fight, right? Yeah, that's yeah, true. I
1: love that. So I love Giant. I think Giant's a masterpiece. I think it's I mean, I know it's long and careful and studied. I think it's directed perfectly. I think the performances are amazing. I think it tells uh, an important story about Texas and the South, right? Right. Uh, And yeah, it's using um, the racism against Mexican-Americans and Mexican migrants as as a way of talking about racism in general. And the scene you're talking about, there's a diner that has a sign that says uh, whites only or something like that. And Rock Hudson's grandchild, and he was a racist too. His family has like, you know latino's in it now so he tries to fight the guy and he gets beaten up
0: hey you you're in the wrong place amigo come on let's get out of here Vamos, andale. your money's no good here come on let's go you two hold on a minute yes what do you want now look here sarge Sure appreciate it if you're a little more polite to these people. Oh, you would, would you? Now you just go back over there and sit down, and we ain't gonna have no trouble. But this bunch here's gonna eat somewhere else. All right, come on, let's go. Take care. Come Take care. on, you two. Sue me. You're out of line, mister.
1: <laughs> it's a wonderful scene.
0: Before we leave television, one one thing I do want to ask you: yeah. um, uh, you were saying that the unfortunately southern characters are a shorthand for racist immediately in the minds of many. Um, but I, I I dread saying it, but it's it's a fact: uh, southern characters are also a shorthand for dim people, which I think is terribly unfair. I mean, some of the finest universities we know are in the south. Some of the most um, brilliant of minds sure. in, in literature, science, and everything come from the south. But then you have you know Matt Goring and James L. Brooks. Uh, giving us cletus as a shortcut on the simpsons i mean sure
1: so uh like you know there was this podcast s town and it was a big deal and in the podcast the the main guy uh has a deep south a deep alabama accent and he is one of the like wittiest and, and most educated people i've heard in like a radio show Right. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. this guy's a thousand miles from the depictions on screen. I mean, a thousand miles, even though he sounds just like him. And, and you know, a film that kind of does, <laughs> a film that cuts into this is, um, oh, what's the name of it? Where uh, Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei, it's just a tip of my tongue, they come down to.
0: Oh, uh, my cousin Vinny? <laughs>
1: my cousin Vinny has educated Southerners yes. pitted against undereducated New Yorkers.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fred Gwynn, as the, as the judge, is very clearly uh, a brilliant man <laughs> who's, who's having some fun with the northerner who's arrogant uh, at the expense of Joe Pesci.
1: My clients are... What are you wearing? Huh? What are you wearing? I'm uh, wearing uh, clothes. And I, I don't get the question. When you come into my court looking like mm-hmm. you do, you not only insult me, But you insult the integrity of this court. I apologize, sir, but uh, this is how I dress. Next time you come into my courtroom, you will look loyally. And I mean, you comb your hair and wear a suit and tie. And that suit better be made out of some kind of cloth. You understand me? Uh, Yes. Uh, Fine, Judge, fine. Fred Gwynn, right? And Fred Gwynn is is clearly, uh, education-wise, they're not even on the same... Like ballpark, <laughs> and and the other lawyer too. He has all these degrees from top universities, and they're kind of. Wa- I mean, Joe Pesci ends up being successful with his learned, like streetwise, you know, gut <laughs> instincts. But it's definitely a.
0: Listen it's a let me tell you what it is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but it's it's a vision of the South that I love that movie, but in part because it shows. Hey, the regional differences that matter, yeah. right? They've been erased recently, but like they go to the diner and he's like, well, we'll just, what are these grits things? Like, what are these grits things? <laughs> and uh, yeah, like there are films that cut into that whole idea of like, everyone else is smart and educated and the Southerners are just, you know, idiots. The bulk of the films don't do that, yeah. right? Yeah. The bulk of the films, they want to show the South um, as either more noble than they are in a weird kind of way, right? Like- yes. And, and I love The Southerner, the Jean Renoir film. I think it's one of the best films about the South because Renoir is a master. It's complex and it's, it's a wonderful film. Um, but there's the, the family is a little too noble for my tastes. Yes. yes. Atticus, right, from Let's Kill a Mockingbird, uh, he's just a little too upright. Like, uh, I, I want complexity uh, uh, in the characters. And so, yeah, the the South somehow seems to lend itself to the stereotype all around. The good characters are are so good and happy, and and the dumb characters are so dumb and, and, and ignorant. Uh, And there are people like that in the South, but they're everywhere.
0: So it's kind of magnified, amplified opera of a sort. I mean, you're not getting the real thing. So let me ask you, Ben, and we're speaking with Ben Beard, uh, a wonderful raconteur, um, wonderful chap to speak with, uh, about his new book, which is called The South Never Plays Itself, A Film Buff's Journey Through the South on Screen. Let me just ask you a concluding question, okay, Uh, Ben? This is... This is Ultimate Fantasy Time. There is a symposium of some of the best current film directors and future film directors. And they are in an audience comprised of about 150 choice persons. And you are the welcomed guest to come and address them and to suggest what would be best as an endeavor and a future course for depicting the South in an earnest and honest and balanced way. What would you say to them?
1: I would say adapt some short stories from Joy Williams, Barry Hannah, Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Like string together some short stories by those, those other writers too, but those three writers in particular capture the humor, the terror, the religious um, strangeness, and the kind of um, the drift of being kind of outside the American dream. That would be a good starting place.
0: Well, Flannery O'Connor. I mean, for instance, uh, John Hughes has uh, tackled that genre, and Flannery O'Connor invariably comes up. If you could say to the, those same directors, "Don't do this," what would it be?
1: Well, Wise Blood, great film. Yeah. But what I would say to those those directors, I would say, um, don't simplify. Like, just don't simplify. Don't reduce, and good filmmakers don't do that, yes. but don't reduce your Southern characters. A, so the South is not synonymous with white, so don't fall into that trap. Yes. B, the South is multi-ethnic, yes. and, and you know the South is a rich and contradictory place, mm-hmm. and those are all good things. And I would say finally, A, don't force a Southern accent if the actor can't do it. Like no problem, right? It's okay, and the look to the look to the literature and the stories because the South is a um, is a bounty. I mean, it's a jubilee of literature and fiction, and you know, I, I'm actually shocked that they haven't done that already.
0: So it's a jubilee, not just a, a mint julep. <laughs> That's
1: <laughs> that's right not just the mid I mean I'm surprised that some directors haven't done that already uh, I see a prestige television series in the Yachna Tapa County uh, Faulkner's County with some picking up the short stories and stringing them together I see like doing the same thing with five or six Flannery O'Connor short stories mm. uh, and I, I don't know why it hasn't happened finally I would say put money I mean if there were any producers in the audience I'd say give money to black filmmakers Yes, because yeah. they the South Belongs to them too, and some of the best films like Queen and B, sorry Queen and Slim, which I oh. thought was marvelous. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it was by an uh, Evanstonian uh-huh. uh, and uh, I want to say a New York filmmaker, they get it. Right, they get it. They right. do a great job like traveling through and capturing the kind of back roads of the South.
0: Well, Ben, you've mentioned a lot of good things, and you are a good writer, and you have produced a good book. Uh, an excellent book, as as a matter of fact. The South Never Plays Itself, a film boss journey through the South on screen. And the author is Ben Beard. Ben, I want to thank you for one of the most delightful hours I've had behind the microphone uh, in the time that we've been doing Watching America. And it's been completely, completely Uh, a joy. And I look forward to talking to you again when you come out with your next work. And again, I can't emphasize to the audience enough, please get Ben Beard, B-E-A-R-D, The South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen. You don't have to be a Southerner to enjoy it. You can be a Northerner and a Westerner or a Brit like me, or I presume Japanese or anything else. It is a, a very honest, earnest, entertaining and thoughtful look at Southern culture as portrayed on the silver screen. Ben Beard, Thank you so very much.
1: Well, thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure for me, too.
0: Take care and God bless. You, too. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm the series creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.